Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 315, Athelred, The Cracks in the Foundation. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for way less than the price of one Dane Geld per month. And thank you very much to Daniel, Yvonne, and Jacqueline for signing up already. Quote, Under Athelred, nothing was done. Or more truly, throughout his whole reign, he left undone those things he ought to have done, and he did those things he ought not to have done. End quote. That's the damning conclusion of Edward Augustus Freeman, a Victorian historian and epic beard grower. And if you're a lit nerd, you might also know the saying, quote, if you once have paid him the Dane Geld, you never get rid of the Dane, end quote. And that's a line from no other than the famous Victorian writer Rudyard Kipling, and he was talking about Athelred. And you might be catching a theme here. The Victorians were not fans of Athelred, but they really did love the misunderstood nickname, Unred. And that's important for us right now because the Victorians invented what has become the scholarly field of history. So as a result, this interpretation of Athelred still dominates the popular perception and discourse of one of the last Anglo-Saxon kings. But why did the Victorians single out Athelred in this way? Well, one reason is likely that everybody enjoys a heel. Bad guys and losers make for interesting narratives, and much like how the religious scribes were writing in pursuit of a spiritual truth, the Victorians were writing in search of a single coherent narrative. And it was a narrative that placed England at the top of the world. An England that was the natural heir to everything. But Athelred posed a problem for that narrative. I mean, he'd been on the throne for just over a year, and already a bunch of Vikings had showed up and started sacking towns in England. And that's not great. In addition, England had paid a shocking number of Danegelds during his reign. Now these Danegelds, which means literally the Dane price, were lump sums of cash and treasure that were given over to raiders, or invaders, on the agreement that they would stop ransacking the area. And you can understand why Kipling and his contemporaries would have hated that, right? I mean, the Victorians were, among other things, imperial. They were all about that conquest life, and they tried to obtain peace through the sword, and also through those increasingly effective guns and cannons. So to that culture, which saw itself as the righteous military ruler of literally the entire planet, well, paying off your enemies rather than fighting and defeating them was just embarrassing. And while I do think that there are plenty of complaints that could be made against Athelred's reign, and we will definitely become familiar with where his reign went wrong, the fact remains that the standard Victorian narrative feels a little unfair. I mean, look at the two main charges against him, the Viking invasions and the Danegelds. Having the sudden return of invaders who were running around sacking English towns just over a year after Athelred took the throne... Well, that does look pretty bad, and it certainly could be interpreted as a sign of his weakness, and it has been interpreted that way. But as we know from last episode, the events that were put into motion by the Scandinavian kings across the sea were what eventually brought the Vikings back to the shores of Britain. 
It was the result of the actions by Harold Bluetooth and Hakon Sigurdsson and Swain Forkbeard and Otto II. It wasn't Athelred. It honestly looks like Athelred was just unlucky, and he simply took the throne at exactly the wrong moment. So blaming him for the resumption of Viking attacks isn't fair. And there's another wrinkle in that Victorian argument. Many older historians were under the impression that the Viking threat had come to an end in the late 10th century. They looked at the records of King Edgar and the silence in the Chronicle, and many of them came to the conclusion that the reign of King Edgar had brought that chapter to a close. And then Athelred went and opened it back up again. But Edgar, the king who was celebrated because he brought that Viking threat to a close, actually left a provision in his will for a war chest, a really big war chest. And it was specifically set aside to, quote, buy off a heathen raiding army if the need arose, end quote, or to provide support during a resulting famine. So even during the reign of King Edgar the Peaceable, that threat was still there. And that provision in his will also brings us to charge number two against Athelred, namely those various Danegelds that were paid during his reign. The way the old Victorian story goes, you'd think that Athelred himself kind of invented the practice. But we know that's not true. As I just pointed out, his father, King Edgar, had specifically left a war chest for the payment of Danegelds in his will. And actually, those payments had a long history in England. Even the main Anglo-Saxon heartthrob of the Victorian era, Alfred the Great, had paid numerous Danegelds over the course of his reign. Dealing with raiders was part of being an Anglo-Saxon king during this era. In fact, buying off raiders was also part of being an Anglo-Saxon king, and it had been that way for generations. Athelred's actions were entirely in line with the standard political operating procedures of the time. And if you're thinking, well, yeah, but Alfred's payments worked. Well, not really. Many of Alfred's attempts to secure peace with the Danes failed. Guthrum repeatedly broke off his treaties with Alfred, and on one of those occasions, he had even managed to seize Wessex and force Alfred into hiding. These things generally weren't that effective. And yet Athelred, rather than anyone else, is the one who catches heat for this common tactic. So why? Well, I think aside from the Victorian narrative that we've been talking about, we also have one other factor that's heavily influencing our perspective. All of a sudden, our records get pretty great. The Age of Athelred, thanks in no small part to the rise of Benedictine reform, sees a flourishing of intellectual pursuits. This is a moment of major cultural and intellectual development in England. This is the era of Abbo and Dunstan and Oswald and Athelwald. This was also the time of Wolfstan of York and Elfric of Einsham, who were two immensely influential writers of the age. It was during this period that we see some of the greatest examples of illuminated manuscripts being produced and reproduced. And that work was being carried out at an astonishing rate. We can thank the era of Athelstan for our copy of Beowulf and for large portions of Anglo-Saxon poetry that we have access to in general. Because England was suddenly awash with writers. And thanks to that shift... We know Athelred's reign down to detail that we've rarely had before. And that's really great for us. But it's not that great for Athelred's reputation. It's sort of like when we all switched to HD cameras and suddenly realized how big Wolf Blitzer's pores were. 
all of a sudden, our records start to read like a George R.R. Martin book, you know, without all the focus on food. And that's because we have writers continually trying to work out what's going on in England. And that's fantastic, because we're finally given some material to chew on. But at the same time, it presents a problem. Because while we hear a lot about the problems that were occurring during Athelred's reign, we don't know if those problems were particular to his reign, or if they were actually common problems that had plagued the Anglo-Saxon kings for generations, and the only difference here is that they were now being well documented. We don't know. Something else to keep in mind is that the Chronicle is one of those documents that goes into significant detail about Athelred, and that's a welcome change but it does so in versions C, D, and E. And that's important to note, because those accounts weren't being written during Athelred's life. Instead, they were probably made by a single author, likely in London, and they were written during the reign of Athelred's enemy. That means that the author was looking back on Athelred's reign, knowing exactly how it would turn out. And it probably shouldn't be that much of a surprise that while he's writing the chronology of the events, he makes a lot of connections and negative judgments. What I'm getting at here is that the narrative of Athelred's rule has a ton of biases contained within it. And they've been there for about a thousand years, and then were reinforced by the people who invented the modern study of history. As such, you have their heirs, like Frank Stenton, who was writing in the Edwardian era, and sometimes you even have later modern historians going and castigating Athelred as an abject failure. And I too have my own views on him, and I'm sure as we get to the end of the series, you will also have your own views. But I think it's important to shine a light on how this information has come to us, and what the writer's views were if for no other reason than it's going to allow us to better weigh the events of the late 10th and early 11th centuries. So, back in the year 978, Athelred was probably about 10 years old, and he had just taken the throne. And even if he hadn't come to the throne in shady circumstances, which he had, he was still, by virtue of his age, a weak king. Child monarchs are almost always weak. But, simply because there was a child on the throne didn't mean that England was suddenly thrown into chaos. The structure of the government was still sound, and things continued to operate normally. Councils were being held, charters were being signed, decrees were made. It all looked pretty normal. In fact, the witness lists during this early period look remarkably like the witness lists of his brother's reign, and even his father's reign. And that suggests that there wasn't a major overhaul of the noble structures in England. Things just kept going on as normal. And that might seem like a good thing for overall stability. But it comes with its own dangers. Because these nobles were inherited, they were likely very powerful in their own right and heading up their own influential dynasties. And they would have come to court with interests of their own. For a sense of what Athelred's Witan looked like, here are a few figures. There was Elderman Athelwinna of East Anglia, whose family held power over that region for generations. He had Elderman Elf Hera of Mercia, who had similar roots in his lands. Elderman Burtnoth of Essex was from a family that was also deeply entrenched in his domain. And Elderman Athelweird was part of the royal family itself. He was an Atheling. And he, too, held a lot of influence over his lands in the western provinces of Greater Wessex. 
These were titanic figures in English politics, but not one of them owed their position to Athelred. In fact, some supported his brother during the fight over the throne that happened several years earlier. Furthermore, even the church was a bit of a problem for Athelred, as Archbishop Dunstan and Archbishop Oswald were both supporters of Edward. Given that history and the way that Edward's reign had ended, you can imagine that there was some bad blood there. Yet, there they were, in Athelred's Witan, and there probably wasn't much he could do about it. You see, Athelred wasn't powerful enough to oust any recalcitrant eldermen or archbishops from their seats. He wasn't even powerful enough to force them into obedience if they acted up. He was a child king. And as for those nobles, well, despite all their power, the eldermen and the archbishops were not in a position to contest Athelred's ascension to the throne, even if they wanted to. He did have the strongest claim to the throne, regardless of what happened to his brother. And that meant he was the king, with the full authority that the divine right of kings conferred. It was a situation where the court was almost certainly a minefield, but at the same time, no one could really get an upper hand. And imagine the day-to-day reality of that situation. The court had to travel regularly. They spent weeks and months on end meeting together and feasting together. And yet, it's quite likely that a good portion of this court hated the other portion. But despite these circumstances, Athelred kept holding the throne. He kept traveling with his court, because he really didn't have any other choice. Royal power was still very much a physical thing. The king needed to be seen ruling. So even if he didn't trust his nobles, the king still needed to be seen in his court. And if those nobles wanted access to power and there were still plenty of people who needed the benefits that royal authority could confer, well, then they needed to have actual access to the king, which meant that they needed to be in his orbit, often literally traveling with his court as he went from residence to residence, reaffirming his authority. But at the same time, even though Athelred was holding court, and even though he was an anointed king, he was also still a child. And that meant two things. One, he had a really weird and dysfunctional childhood. I mean, seriously. But two, he wasn't yet ready to rule on his own. He would have to have help. And that meant that the people who were closest to the king were presented with an incredible opportunity to advance their own desires and plans, provided that they played their cards right. And, as you might expect, soon after Athelred was proclaimed king, he was surrounded by noble adults who likely ran the kingdom for him as a regency council. And thanks to the fact that the way witness lists are written are obsessed with status, we're able to identify the most likely members of Athelred's regency council. They're almost certainly Bishop Athelwald, Elderman Elfhera of Mercia, and Athelred's mother, the Dowager Queen Elfthrith. Now at the center of that council was almost definitely Bishop Athelwald but we shouldn't underestimate the influence of the Queen Mother, either. The two seem to work in concert, and we can see the shadows of their influence in the early actions of Athelred. We've already spoken at length about the zeal that Bishop Athelwald had for reform, but he wasn't the only faith-driven person in that powerful inner circle. Queen Aelfthrith was an ardent supporter of monastic reform, and during her husband's reign, she had become a major advocate for the legal position of nunneries. Far from the typical wicked stepmother trope that was lobbed at her over a century later, 
the contemporary records of Aelfrith tell the story of someone who worked tirelessly in support of the church. And shortly after Athelred took the throne, the attacks on the monastic communities that had punctuated the reign of Edward were brought to an end, and then the church began to receive large grants of land from the king. And there were many reasons why this was likely happening, but it's not hard to see the influence of Bishop Athelwald and Queen Aelfthrith here. And reflecting Bishop Athelwald's sudden prominence at court and the incredible power that he'd acquired, in 980, we see him rededicating Old Minster. Now, Old Minster, by this time, had acquired a checkered past. It had been at the center of a number of royal and religious power struggles and was actually the literal site of some potentially violent evictions, with Bishop Athelwald being responsible for at least one of those evictions himself. The history of Old Minster was a whole thing. But Bishop Athelwald had been working on redeveloping it. And in 980, just one year after Athelred's coronation, Old Minster was ready to be rededicated. And the rededication of Old Minster was quite an event. The important figures of the land were all invited to gather for it. But while this event was officially about Old Minster, the records give the impression that it was really about something else. We're told that Bishop Athelwald invited his colleagues and friends, but he also invited his enemies. And they all came. Yeah, even the leading men of England, who had recently been a thorn in Athelwald's side, had come. And there, at the spiritual center of the ancient West Saxon monarchy, these old enemies approached the bishop, bowed their heads, kissed his right hand, and asked for his blessing. Bishop Athelwald was being presented to them, and he received them as a lord would have done. They were approaching Athelwald the way he would a king. And with this acknowledgement, even Bishop Athelwald's enemies were recognizing him as their lord. They were symbolically declaring themselves as his retainers. Athelwald was openly consolidating his power and placing it on display for all to see. It was a hell of a move. And on that same year, when the bishop brought all his enemies to Winchester so they could watch him flex nuts, far to the north, fleets of ships set sail. Athelwald's victory lap in Winchester was punctuated by the first wave of Viking strikes. And they were bad. As I mentioned last episode, large portions of Southampton were enslaved or killed. Thanet was overrun. Chester was sacked. The situation in England was immediately grave. But what was worse was what followed. It's likely that these ships were some of the first to realize and capitalize on a major change that had happened in Western Europe. The ships that were striking the English port towns no longer needed to go all the way home in order to offload their goods and resupply. They didn't even need to sail across the Irish Sea. Instead, they could just take a short trip across the channel, sell the treasure and the people that they had taken, and turn right around to launch another attack. And that's because the ports of Normandy were now open and friendly to Scandinavian pirate fleets. Yes, 1066 fans, Normandy has officially entered the story. And I'll give you a moment to collect yourselves. And this actually does deserve a pause. That opening of ports was a catastrophic development in European politics, especially for England. But like most things, early writers either ignore this reality or find a way to blame it on Athelred. 
But to understand why this had happened, we need to go back, way back, to the 9th century Viking Rollo. We've spoken about Rollo in the past. He was involved in the siege of Paris, and he was an effective and ruthless warlord. Rollo's exploits are extensive, but what matters for this story is that after pretty much leveling Rouen and conquering Bayeux, he captured the daughter of the Count of Rennes, her name was Papa, and he married her. But given the fact that she was a prisoner and he was a warlord, this likely wasn't a loving or even willing partnership. But they soon had a son who Rollo named William. He would later be known as William Longsword. And then, after a little bit, in an effort to stem the Scandinavian tide, King Charles III of France decided to give Rollo the lands in Rouen, as well as his hinterlands, in exchange for his fealty and service. Rollo was then baptized and took the name Robert. He then returned to his lands and shared a lot of them out to his Viking captains. Later, when Charles abdicated to Rudolf, Rollo believed he was released from his fealty. I mean, a new king means a new arrangement. And so he began to raid and expand his territory and wealth. His lands soon expanded into Besson and Maine. And then further concessions were made by the French crown, again in an effort to contain him. Now Rollo eventually died, and then his son, William Longsword, took control of the region. Now as you might remember, William took part in the numerous French wars over the crown. And we've spoken about some of them, as his story intersected with Hugh the Great and King Louis IV. But most importantly, he often found himself in direct conflict with Alfred the Great's grandson, Count Arnulf of Flanders. Now, during one of his many exploits, he captured a Breton woman named Sprota, and he had a child with her. There's no record of a formal marriage, but that's not all that surprising. These guys weren't French aristocrats. They were basically landed Vikings. So the obsession with proper marriages wasn't yet part of their culture. So he captured Sprota, And apparently, that was good enough. Eventually, a son was born. They named him Richard. Are you catching a theme here with these guys, by the way? I mean, these are the roots of Normandy. Conquest, capture, and rape. Now, eventually, William was murdered at that shady meeting on an island of the Somme that we talked about a while ago. It was the one where his enemy, Arnulf, was at, but he claimed he had no idea what was going to happen, and in a strange plot twist actually tried to save William despite the fact they were enemies? Yeah, Count Arnulf of Flanders liked to lay it on pretty thick. But he probably needed to, because with William dead, his son, Richard, was going to inherit his father's lands. But Richard was still very young. So rather than ruling over Normandy, Richard needed a guardian. So he was handed over to, wait for it, Arnulf. Yeah, that same half-English noble who almost certainly assassinated his father. And just in case you're thinking, well, hey, maybe Arnulf was innocent and really was interested in supporting William and his family because they patched things up. Well, immediately after getting his hands on Richard, Arnulf imprisoned the boy and then divided his lands between Hugh the Great and King Louis IV. So I think we can all see what happened. And I think Richard knew what happened too. But by the time he was 14 years old, he was ready to move. He'd been working on engineering a plan to escape. And sure, he was barely out of his tween years, but the fact was that he still had a claim to Normandy, and he still had strong allies. There were the Normans who were still loyal to him, but there was also the Viking captains who supported his cause. 
And critically, our old friend Harold Bluetooth was convinced that Richard and his father had been done dirty by the French. So he sent his men to fight for him. And in 946, after winning a great battle, Richard forced King Louis IV to recognize him as a duke and restore Normandy to him. Now, Hugh the Great, seeing the way that the winds were blowing, decided that he should probably ally himself with Duke Richard. I mean, he pretty clearly was an up-and-comer here. And probably as a way to make it clear that there was no hard feelings about that whole I almost certainly conspired with Arnulf to kill your dad and steal your lands thing, Hugh the Great decided to betroth his daughter, Emma, to Duke Richard. But Duke Richard still had some enemies. I mean, the House of Normandy wasn't French, which was a pretty bad thing in French politics. And let's be honest, they were kind of terrifying creeps, which was even worse in French politics. So King Louis, Count Arnulf, and Emperor Otto the Great hatched a plan. They would depose Duke Richard. So they mustered their forces and marched on Normandy. And Hugh the Great, who hated Louis, threw his lot in with Duke Richard, and they marched out to meet the forces arrayed against them. In the end, Richard and Hugh were triumphant, and the House of Normandy was now fully entrenched in French politics. King Louis died soon thereafter. And then, in 955, Hugh the Great, likely seeking to further bind his family to Richard, appointed the Duke as the guardian of his 15-year-old son, Hugh Capet. And he would go on to become the founder of the Capet dynasty. And then, Hugh the Great died shortly thereafter, peacefully. Yeah, for those of you hoping that he would have some sort of epic comeuppance, sorry. Hugh was Europe's Circe. About five years later, Emma was finally old enough for marriage. So the betrothal ended, and Richard and Emma married. This marriage firmly cemented Normandy in the power structure of Francia. But it wasn't entirely without opposition. A couple years later, in 962, Richard's position was threatened when Count Theobald tried to seize Rouen. But Richard fought them off before they could even cross the Seine. And at this point, Richard was so powerful that King Lothaire of West Francia had to step in to stop the war. Because the fear was that if Richard went fully on the offensive, it could destabilize the entire kingdom. But despite all his power, he was without an heir. Emma was very sickly, and the two of them couldn't conceive a child. And eventually, in 968, Emma died. Shortly thereafter, Richard heard that the wife of a nearby forester was pretty hot. So he went to see her. Now this woman's name was Senfrida, and she was indeed pretty hot. So Duke Richard ordered that the forester's wife be sent to his bed, because the House of Normandy. But while she might just be a forester's wife, and he might be a duke, Senfrida wasn't having it. So she convinced her sister, Gnora, to go to him in her place. And apparently, hotness ran in the family, because the duke was rather satisfied with this substitution, and he decided to keep Ganora. Over the years, they ended up having six children together, including the heir apparent, Richard II. But Duke Richard, like his father, was a Viking at heart. So even though he was subject to a Christian king, he didn't marry Ganora. And it stayed that way for 20 years. He only relented later on so that his son, who had been born in the pagan fashion, could become, hilariously, the Archbishop of Rouen. But even though all six of their children were born out of wedlock, they were children who would go on to become an Archbishop, they would become Dukes, they would become powerful ladies, 
and one, this is true, would even become the Queen of England. Normandy, despite being barbaric in the eyes of their Christian neighbors, was becoming a powerhouse in the West. And part of what had given rise to such a powerful dynasty was that Duke Richard I generally didn't bring war upon other Frankish territories. Instead, he focused on stabilizing Normandy and building links with his Scandinavian allies at home and abroad, and turning the duchy into a remarkably cohesive territory. It was a smart strategic move, since it made him formidable at home, and now we likely had the strongest duchy in Francia, Richard's position would go unchallenged. Meanwhile, those Scandinavian allies, you know, the ones who helped him regain his duchy and then stabilize it, were out there raiding and filling their coffers. And Richard had no reason to want to stop them. Not only were they his allies, but they were also doing a pretty good job destabilizing his neighbors, which was pretty good for him. And as a bonus, one of those neighbors was England, a kingdom that was ruled over by the relatives of the guy who had imprisoned him and almost had certainly assassinated his father. So why would Duke Richard ever want to stop his Scandinavian allies from raiding the English? He wouldn't, would he? There was money to be made, there were allies to support, and seriously, screw England. So, pirate ships, likely carrying English slaves and valuables, began to port in Norman harbors. And for Bishop Athelwald and the Regency Council, that was seriously getting in the way of the political victory laps that they were running at Old Minster. Unread doesn't mean the same thing as unready. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on a bunch of social media, and you can find links to all of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.